We're coming back to our study concerning the doctrine of church discipline. This is, I believe, lecture 13. If I got it right, I seen the last recording was 12. And we're dealing with the question of self-discipline in the context of corrective church discipline. It's a very important point to be made in this area. And so we've spent a little time here. I wanted to, in particular, look at a few passages of Scripture. Uh, one of the things that we'll see once we get started today is that this is a clearly a Puritan area of thought that was attached to all of their writings. The concept of a progressive sanctification in the life of a believer. The idea that believers manifest the work of the Spirit in them, the fruits of the Spirit. That they walk in the good works that were ordained for them. To deny that is to deny Scripture. And I would say to you, be careful, because when you deny Scripture, you're basically shaking your fist in the face of God, saying you do not know from which you are talking about. That is not the case at all. God knows exactly what he is, because he's the one that saved you from sin to what? What is it? His end goal in redemption in seeking to be accomplished. It is that we should walk in the righteousness of Christ in the life that he lived as we shall live in our life and calling unto him. So let us return again and remember what we have been looking at. We said that Matthew 18, kind of our text for this series, is really a picture of the most common understanding of church discipline. And it begins at verse 15. And again, listen to it. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, everything that has been said may be repeated by those who witnessed that which was in the conversation between the person offended and the person who did the offending. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he will not resolve the problem privately, then it becomes a matter of the church having to deal with the discipline, which means the church is going to get informed. This gentleman or this lady has done such and such. She will not repent of her sin. She will not hear and heed the admonition that has been given to her, and thus, without repentance, we are going to have to take an action. So it is you have to take it to the church. 
and let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church has been given the authority to bind and to loosen. In other words, the bride of Christ appeals to their husband. We are the bride, Christ is our husbandman. And when we appeal to him and ask him in his name to do that which is right according to his word, he will bind the truth to that circumstance. When we say, oh God, this person has come and they've repented, we ask that you loosen them from their being under sin and condemnation for what they have done and give them freedom to again be able to pursue your righteousness and holiness of life, knowing that they have done right in their repentance. But he goes on to say, and again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it may be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where there two or three are gathered in my name, and the name is on the basis of a particular church discipline, I am there in the midst of the, it's guaranteed. Christ says, I will be there. I will do the binding. I will do the loosening. Should you have a wholesome fear of the church? Yes, you should. The church belongs to Christ. He's given it officers to oversee it, to keep it pure for him. As he says, he redeeming it without spot and wrinkle. And they have their duty and responsibility. And whatever they bind on heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever they loosen up on the earth, they will loosen up in heaven. He is there in their midst. Nothing gets by him. And as a result, he will avenge his church if it's necessary. Well, I would certainly hope that that would be true in life as well. We have seen that marriage is a type of Christ in the church, Ephesians chapter 5. What husband would not avenge the offense that is committed against his wife? We don't think about these things. We think about these things too often, much like the world thinks. Well, I'll join this club over here, and if I don't like it, I'll just leave. I'll join the Elks Club, and I'll leave and go to the Moose Club. And if I don't like the Moose Club, I'll leave, and I go to, I don't know, whatever else I got, the Squirrel Club, uh, the Raccoon Club, whatever the case may be. And I'll just go until I find some place I want to be. Doesn't work that way. The church is the bride of Christ. He expects you to treat it with great care. How is it to be understood, both collectively and individually? 
That's why if somebody sins against you, you go and fix it. He didn't say if you did the sinning. It said if you're a sinned against, you go. If they won't hear you, take two or three witnesses so you can establish everything that's trying to be accomplished. And they also can hear it and they can agree with it or they can report exactly what has happened. And if he will not hear, he will not repent, and that is determined that that is the case, then it will be brought to the church. Do you not think Jesus Christ, if you really say you believe in him and believe he's alive, do you not think that if the church does not bind someone up in discipline, that Christ will not avenge his church of your sin? A husband that will not avenge his wife when someone sins against them or offends them is not much of a husband. I mean, if somebody came up to you and just said, you know what? Your wife's ugly and her mother dresses are funny. You should be offended at that. You don't say, yeah, but you know, she can cook really good. You don't agree with it. It's an offense. That person has offended your wife. If you love her, you will take exception to that. Well, Christ does. That's the whole point of Matthew. If you bring it to the church, you're invoking Christ to now become a part of it. When the church says we've done all we can do and they will not listen and they have to declare them outside of the church. Not you have to leave the church. You need to come to hear the word preached to repent. But you have proven yourself to not be a Christian. We're setting you apart from the church. This person's Profession of faith seems to be a lie. And they have offended the church of Jesus Christ. Do you not think that Christ is not going to take vengeance upon you for them? What's what he just said? Christianity is no small thing. It's not something that you can take and leave as you please. If you've been called by Christ to it, you don't have an option. You must pursue the righteousness that you've been called unto. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to be religious and I'll do some things, but you know what? I'm going to draw a line somewhere. I'm not going down that road with you. You're going down every road Christ calls you to go down. You don't have an option. And so it is, this concept of church discipline, we said, begins with the concept of learning, of education, being tutored how to live a life that is pleasing to God as one who has professed that they have been redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ. We said that you begin church discipline when you enter into the membership of the church. 
you're going to be instructed. You're going to be taught. Oh, there will be corrective discipline if that's necessary. But if you're a discretionary type Christian that says, I want to do what God wants me to do, you will do what? You will learn. You will be educated. You will be tutored in how to do these things in order to please your God. So there's always that positive and negative aspect to church discipline. And in Galatians 5.23, we were told there is gentleness and there is self-control. The very same word that we use for what? Self-discipline. That's what we're talking about. And therefore, we are to learn to restrain our life, restrain our thoughts and our actions prior to committing a transgression of the law of God. That's what we've been called to do. Self-control, avoiding transgressions that violate the law of God. What is that? Self-control. God has called you to be his. He's freed you from what? The slavery of sin and death and made you now a free slave to Christ. You have the power to avoid the transgression of sin. I didn't say you'll do it perfectly because you're not perfected yet. But you have the power by the Spirit to live and to constantly war with sin in your life. Well, we looked Romans chapter 6, last Lord's Day, and now I want us to look at Romans 8, if you will, because it's very important. Here again, we see this emphasis that the Apostle Paul is giving concerning those who have been redeemed in Christ. You can see where the Puritans pick up this in their theology. It is a constant reminder when you read the Puritans. Those are the English-Scottish reformers, and from Wales as well, and even some from Ireland. That is, they have picked up this mantle of the Reformation from the continent. In particular, they have seen the importance of a real application of Christianity. Unlike the church in the past, where the emphasis was just everybody say the right thing, they have come and said, say the right thing all you want. If you do not embrace the truth of it, it doesn't make any difference. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your voice. Don't come and say to me, I'm a Christian. Show me how you're a Christian. Isn't that what P James asked in his epistle? You say you have no faith? Well, are no works? Well, show me how that faith works without a demonstration of it. 
It's like beating the wind. You're going to do a lot of punching but never hit a thing. But I can show you from my works exactly how my faith is put to work. Well, here Paul in Romans 8 really lays out this principle. Now listen to what he says, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore, based on chapter 6 and 7, where he gets into the whole question of righteousness and walking in the holiness of life and being in the Spirit, he says, there is therefore, based on all that we have studied up to this point, if you want to, you could go back to actually chapter 1 and follow the system of theology poets taught all the way through 7. There is therefore now, now, no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Not those who give lip service to Jesus Christ, but are actually in Christ. Who do not, now this is where he qualifies what he's saying. Well, how do you know that he's saying you have to be in Christ? Why not just shake your head and say, yeah, I kind of agree with Christ. Because he says this, who do not walk. The word walk means conducting themselves. Who do not conduct their life according to the flesh, the way of the world, the desires of the world, the transgressions that the world performs constantly before God, being under its condemnation of sin. So there's therefore now no condemnation. No one is condemned who has the righteousness of Christ. And look what he says but according to the Spirit. They don't walk according to what? The flesh, the way of the world, the worldly desires, but they walk according to the Spirit of God. Again, I remind you, I read Ephesians 5, I mean, uh, Galatians 5 to you. All the fruit of the Spirit. And then I contrasted that with the fruit of the flesh. Those who are walking, what? According to the Spirit of God. That is, the Spirit of God being in them, having renewed them, they cannot but walk in that life. And for them, there is no condemnation. Not to those who profess it, those who are walking in it, embracing it in their life. Now listen to what he says. Paul writes, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is the law of the Spirit. To those who are in what? Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I used to be a slave to sin. On my way to hell. 
going to experience the second death, which is going to bring eternal condemnation to me. For the law of the spirit of life, life, the life you live in Christ Jesus has made me. The spirit who is in me has not wanted me, but made me free from the law of sin and death. I've been freed from that condemnation. I've been freed from the condemnation that I've been enslaved to all these years, ever since I've been born. Now I'm free from sin and death because I walk in the Spirit. Not that I profess faith in the Spirit. We live in an age where so many people say, Oh, I wish that I see this all the time on the internet. Oh, we've just got to get along better. We're not really acting like Christians. We got to love each other. You don't love sin. And there's no such nonsense as hate the sin, love the sinner. Because God sends the sinner to hell, not the sin. It's already where it came from. Why is this important? Paul takes the next step. Listen to it. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law could not accomplish this. I could not keep the law in order to be saved. Impossibility. The gospel is not about keeping the law to get acceptance with God. Is there a law? Is there a Work that we can do? Yes, it comes after redemption. It demonstrates that I am in the beloved. I'm in Christ. What the law could not do, that is the law of the flesh, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, you want to know why Christ needed to come and to die? Here's your answer. We could not save ourselves. There was no way to restore us to the righteous standing that we had in Adam before he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All possibility is gone. And thus, if there is going to be salvation for you and me, God has to send the Son. And, and please, people, I know there's a lot of weird theology out there, especially in so much of the gospel music. God didn't search through heaven to try to figure out who he could send to redeem us. That kind of a God is the God of the Mormons. He is a finite God. Maybe bigger than us, but he's still finite. God is omnipotent. He thinks everything in one complete thought at one time. There's no progression. There were no options, probabilities, possibilities. There was one way of redemption from the beginning. The triune God determined. 
And that was through the economy of the Trinity that is in the work of salvation, each of the roles that were played, the Son was going to do the redemption. Thus, since we cannot be saved by the work of the law in the flesh because it was weak, the flesh could not accomplish it. God had to do it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is like unto us, Hebrews says, in all manner of life, yet without what? Sin. On account of sin. In other words, he did this because we needed to be saved from sin. What kind of salvation says, oh, I can get forgiveness and go to heaven and have fire insurance, but I don't have to quit sinning. I can sin with impunity. I'm still going to heaven. You show me that in the Bible, I'll tell you to sign up for it. Not there. Not there. If you think you're going to profess your way into heaven by the skin of your teeth and not be abhorrent at sin, to be offended by sin, to look to flee from sin, got another thought coming. Doesn't work that way. That's our doctrine of perseverance of the saints those who are saints those who are sanctified by the spirit because of the renewal of the spirit and regeneration we have been transformed in the renewing of our mind and we pursue that high calling of God unto holiness to be separate from the world the world of sin to live unto the world of Christ because that was the purpose of God from the beginning on account that we could not redeem ourselves from that sin, God had to send his own son in the likeness. That's the meaning for this incarnate season. It is all about the purpose of God and his plan of redemption. God had to place the second person. The Bible says in Hebrews, thou hast prepared a body for me. He just didn't take it upon one upon himself. The body was prepared by the Father, and the Father through the Spirit placed him in that body that was prepared for him and his mother Mary. That what? He could become like unto us in all manner, and yet have victory over sin. By living a faithful, pure life before the law of God, keeping God's law on our behalf as our federal head, going to the cross, dying for our sin to redeem us, that we might be redeemed in the alien righteousness that we have been given by the Spirit, rejoining us to a right relationship with God.
It's the meaning of the season. Everything else is a joke. Oh, it's nice. It's become more of a custom than anything in America. Everybody's got their Christmas tree. They got Santa Claus on the front porch, blown up in a balloon, and it's blowing around, and he looks like he's waving, and you got all kind of stuff, and we buy gifts for each other, and, you know, that's all nice. The good possibility is he wasn't born in December. It was probably June, but... Who's going to quibble, right? He was born under a lunar calendar, not a Roman calendar. But who's going to quibble? All that are things added. No, the real reason he died was that we could be set free from our sin. You see, that's the real story. I have been set free. From sin. I am therefore no longer under the condemnation of God. God did that by sending his own son. Do you not see the importance of that? And then what does he say? He condemns sin in the flesh. Christ condemns sin in the flesh by keeping the law of God for us. Because we, born in Adam, have had that condemnation, that legal judgment hanging over our head ever since the violation in the garden by Adam. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law, that is, the requirement is what? To not transgress it. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Do you get the emphasis here? Fulfilled in you and us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. People, if people are not walking according to the spirit of God in their life, Something's wrong. And you need to tell them. Oh, they're not going to be perfect. But when they are sinning with impunity, they need to be told, hey, this is a problem. Something wrong in your life. You were not saved for this purpose. You were saved that the law of God would be fulfilled in you, which set you free from the law of sin and death, which made you a person who would pursue righteousness. Where is your righteousness? Where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where are the good works that come from the life that you live? Let's see them. Oh, I don't have any good works or fruit, but believe me, I, I truly have real faith. I believe. Yeah, so do the devil. So do the demons. The Bible says the demons believe don't do them any good either, does it? You might be fooling yourself. You might think I'm a saint when in reality, ha, you're just a little demon. Well, I believe. So do the demons. 
But there must be that fiducia, that embracing of the faith, that which if you've been renewed by the Spirit, it just oozes with the fruit of the Spirit in your life. This was the import of the Puritans' theology. They wouldn't bring you and said, you know what? We've been trying to teach you systematic theology for 25 years. You haven't got it right yet. So we're going to discipline you. They never did. That was never an a, a, uh, offensive problem that they would have to bring church discipline in. Well, we expected you to have a doctorate in theology by now. What happened? We're going to have to discipline you. People, church discipline is over what we're discussing here. Walking in righteousness. It's because there is no manifestation of the Spirit of God, of the righteousness of Christ in you, of the works that you've been ordained to walk in, that you're being judged. Other words, the church has a job to be a fruit inspector, and we come around, look at your tree. If you have no fruit, that's a bad sign. And if you say, look, I have fruit, and I'm an apple tree, and you got oranges, you also got problems. That's why it's used as an illustration. You know, illustrations were designed to give you the basic principle idea so you wouldn't miss it. Unfortunately, 85% of the church is missing it. If you're a fruit inspector, you expect fruit. And we are all fruit inspectors. If someone offends you, you go to him to make a right. You say, look, the fruit that you have performed as a Christian toward me is not fruit of righteousness, but the fruit of death. If you will repent of your offense, that's the fruit of righteousness. That tells us that Christ's spirit lives in you. You want to deal with sin. You want to do it right before God. So he goes on to say, for those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. You know what he means? Those who live in sin set their mind on what? Sin. That's what they want to do. They could say one thing, but he says they're going to live something else. Their real thought, their real mind, their real attitude is not what they're saying with lips. It's what they're doing with their hands and feet. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is according to the Spirit that lives within them, the things of the Spirit, that's what they're performing. This is why self-discipline is so important. You're going to examine yourself. What does Peter say? Daily make your calling and election sure of God. Daily go before God. Examine your life. Ask God for the power to perform that which is right and good 
that the Spirit of God has redeemed you from that law of sin and death. Thus he says to us, for to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded, to pursue the things of the flesh, to be carnally minded, to want to walk in the flesh, not in the spirit, is what? Death. Do not be fooled. The end thereof is death, not life. But to be spiritually minded is life, the life you live, and the promise of eternal life, and peace. It brings peace to a confused heart and mind. Person who is stuck in the way of the world. They can't escape the clutches of sin and destruction. Then he goes on to say, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's an enemy of God. It's opposed to God. The carnal mind, not the spiritual mind, the carnal mind. It's going to oppose God. It's going to oppose the law of God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody says. That's the spirit of a carnal mind. Oh, how I love Jesus. Even though I'm cheating next door with the woman who's married to the next door neighbor man. You see, that kind of cardinal mindedness, maybe not as extreme as that is, is what he's saying is if you're carnally minded, you got a real problem. You're standing against God. God didn't call you to sin. If he called you by his spirit to regenerate you, he called you to walk in righteousness of faith. For it is not subject to the law of God. Did you get that? The carnal mind is an enemy of God. It's opposed to the things of God. For it is not subject to the law of God. It will not submit itself to live by God's standard of righteousness. Indeed, nor indeed can be. It's impossible. So when you see somebody who's out there committing a sin, and they won't get out of their sin. They won't war with their sin. More than anything else, they don't hate it. They live in it. Oh, they'll say, I wish I wouldn't do it, but they keep on doing it. He said, what did you expect? If they're not subject to the spirit of God. They're not going to live by the law of God. No, they cannot be. So then he says, those who are in the flesh, those who walk in the way of the world, cannot please God. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God, here again, what? Dwells in you. Why? Because he changes your thinking. He changes your desires. He changes you from chasing the world 
to fleeing from the world in sin and living in Christ, producing fruit of the Spirit, producing works in his life as a Christian. Now he says, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? He's none of his. How simple does that get, folks? Think about your Christian walk. Are you really walking in Christ? Are you really? And if Christ is in you, the body is what? Dead. Because of sin. But the spirit is life. It's the spirit that gives life. The body is already dead. It died in Adam. It's under condemnation. Man, if there is any life in you, it can't be in the body. It's got to be because of the spirit that renews you and lives within you. Because of what? Of the righteousness that's been given to you by Christ. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh. We owe a debt. But it's not to live according to the flesh. But to live, what? According to what? Christ. Listen to how he says it. For your debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, what? You'll die. It doesn't get any simple. Go back to Galatians 5. Ask yourself, do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life or do you have the fruit of the flesh? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, not just the thought, the deeds those which are thought and action, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Christ didn't save you to live under the bondage of sin again. But you received the spirit of adoption whereby you cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? The children of God. Here we have a picture, just like we've seen in chapter 6. These are pictures, they're sketches of a believer who is under the guidance and control of God himself through the work of the Holy Spirit having bathed you in the blood of Jesus Christ. Discipline is also the end of that process. It's what you're being discipled for, taught, instructed, tutored. Indeed, when a successful disciplinary process is completed, 
it will also produce what? A godly, self-controlled saint. Self-control by means of the Spirit and the Word will be the end result of church discipline. Whether it's directive, prescriptive, what we're talking about in self-discipline, or what you're talking about in corrective when you have to be corrected because you won't correct the sin yourself. The restored believer will ideally be a self-governing believer. That's the goal. If you were a self-governing believer, you'd never sit before a church council to be dealt with for censorship. You never would. You know what happens if somebody offends somebody and somebody goes and says, hey, I was offended by this. You sinned against me and here's how. You know what a real believer does? Man, I'm sorry. That's I, I did not mean to do that. Forgive me. I've done wrong by you. You don't get 50 reasons that I'm going to justify what I did. You got somebody who just doesn't want to stand under the condemnation of God for this. Because that's not who they are. My friends, this is neglected by too many churches who falsely accuse a churches who do practice church discipline. We're not the only one in the United States. May not be many of us, but we're not the only one. We practice those things which are commanded of us. We're not a cult. We've never said drink the Kool-Aid. We've never said, look, I'm going to tell you what to do every moment of your life. I'm going to walk behind you with a pen and pencil. I'm going to write down everything you do wrong. I expect certain behavior from you, not behavior out of the Word of God. My own thing. I don't want you dressing in white. I don't want you dressing in black. I don't want you dressing in purple or this or that or only dress in blue. You're not getting any of that legalistic nonsense. The only thing we're saying is you got to do what the Word of God says, especially by His law. When God sets you free from sin and death, He does not put you back into fear. He says you're free. Only man will make legalistic laws to live by. Only they will seek to find somebody else to blame for their sin. Well, if you'd have been watching me closer, yeah, you wouldn't be happy with that either. Been down the road, don't have to tell me, I know. <clears throat> I'm telling you, those who will not practice church discipline as God has commanded need to really question their love for their God, their love for his people, and even their love for themselves because they are doing great harm to the church of Jesus Christ. God requires it in his word. 
He expects that the restored believer be a trained, taught, disciplined individual in his righteousness that is given to us in Christ, according to which our bad habits, our sinful habits, have been replaced with righteous habits, with works of the Spirit, walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Church discipline is more than just forgiveness and reconciliation. It means changing the offender into a self-disciplined purpose. A person who walks in that very thing. I not only said, forgive me, and I apologize. Now we've made everything right. I'll go my way and I'll commit the sin again. No, it's a person who actually is able to govern and control their life. That's the end thereof. Now, counseling comes into play at this point. No question. Unless a person is disciplined in the full sense of the word, the offending party is likely to return to the ways of rebellion and death. Because that's who they really are. Oh, I know, they say they're believers. And they try to convince us, you got to believe me. I'm telling you the truth. But the problem is, you see, you said you'd have the fruit of the Spirit hanging from your limbs. You'd have the works of righteousness in your life. We see nothing. The only fruit is rot. And you're walking in the way of condemnation. And God's going to hold you accountable. We're not perfect. We've got to war with sin in our life. We do it every day. We're not careful enough. But the whole point of it is being Christians. When the Spirit of God makes his conscience, hey, you just violated the Word of God. We confess it. We repent of it. We make it right. We work to control it in our life. Well, this is the prescriptive side, which is still a corrective thing, but it's self-correction. It's before you actually have to walk into that authoritative correction where someone is either going to confront you one-on-one or you've done it publicly and the church will have to go Strictly publicly, and Matthew 18 does not apply. Look, if somebody says something to you, I've seen this, I've, I've been accused of this, and I think it's quite humorous, because you'd think people that have been educated would be smarter than this, but they'll say, well, I think so-and-so, and done this and this, and you say, well, I'm sorry, but that's not right. Oh, you've slandered me. No, I haven't, you idiot. You wrote it in public. I said it in public. If your sin's in public, expect to be dealt with publicly. Because you sin before all. And what do we see as we already have studied? Those who sin before all need to be disciplined that all may fear God's discipline and rebuke. You must get control 
That's what being a Christian is. I have control. I'm not perfect, but I have control. I'm working at it. I work every day. I never let down my guard. I continue to work at it. Sin sneaky. It's pleasurable for a season. Sometimes it gets me and gets me hooked. And I've got to deal with that problem. But I deal with it. I deal with it. I deal with it. If it's a sin in private that nobody knows, then you deal with it between you and God. If it's between you and a brother, then you've got to have that dealt with. If it's between you and the church, then it has to be dealt with. If it's in the public, it has to be dealt with in the public. If you don't want to deal with it, God says the church just simply cast you out of its membership, declare you a non-Christian, and then let God take care of it. That, my friend, is where you've really got to understand it's a fearful thing to trample under the foot the blood of Christ because he does not take kindly to it at all. You think you're going to tramp, trample underfoot the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ? The Father ain't going to put up with that. You want condemnation? You want destruction in your life? Take a war out on God. Take a war out on Christ. Trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Lie about who you are. You'll find out. You can't win that war. You never do. Sin never wins. Only righteousness in Christ by the power of the Spirit makes us free from sin and death. And we are given the promise of life eternal in the Son. We are victorious. And if there's no victory in your life, it's simply a life of lip service, but no actual living, no fruit, no works ordained therein. You need to wake up because you're not in Christ. That was the Puritans. Everything they preached ended with that one admonition consistently. This is all going to one thing, to the purpose of God sending his son to die for you. How dare you say he did not set you free from sin by living a life that is ungodly and righteous and as a mockery to the very word of the living God. Help us, O oh God, that we would not be that people. Let us be a people of the book. Let us be warriors. You're not going to be perfect. Not until you're glorified. The day's coming. But the day's coming in which judgment will be made. and We'll find out then and then it's going to be too late. Your judgment is not based on the blood of Christ and his righteousness. Let's pray.